We're taking just a little one-week break from our Old Testament series this evening, and this is occasioned by the Charles Simeon Trust preaching workshop that I was at this week. Uh, I was there Thursday and Friday, and um, it was supposed to be Saturday as well, but I wasn't able to make it on Saturday. That cut into the sermon prep time that I had available to me to spend on our Old Testament series. But at the same time, the workshop forced me to prepare a sermon on 2 Timothy. So, that's what you're getting tonight. So let me begin by uh, giving you some general information about this epistle. We, we find the standard structure in epistles that there's a greeting at the beginning which tells you who it's to, who it's from. And we see that this is a letter from Paul to Timothy. Paul the Apostle to Timothy the pastor. But it's not just apostle to pastor. There's a kind of a father and son type relationship here. They're not biological father and son. There's no uh, relationship of adoption or anything like that. But it's, it's a relationship that's something like father and son. Paul writes to Timothy in verse 2. My beloved child. And we can't miss that in verse 5, Paul says, I am, remem- I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And there's no mention of Timothy's dad. So we don't really know what's the situation there. We don't know maybe whether he was an unbeliever or, and, and wasn't really supportive of Timothy's chosen vocation as a pastor or we don't know if he had died and was no longer in the picture for that reason but in any case Timothy gravitates to Paul as a sort of father figure in the faith and Paul sort of takes on Timothy as something of a son in the faith and so there is warmth throughout this letter as it's not just an apostle writing to a pastor but it is Paul an older man writing to someone who is like a son to him in the faith And Paul is in jail at Rome at this time. He had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he has gone. By this time he is in Rome, and he's awaiting his appearance. And he's writing here, therefore, toward the end of his life. For we know that during his imprisonment, or or pardon me, there, there is no period after his imprisonment at Rome that that was the end. And he was there for a couple of years, and then he was executed. And so Paul is writing toward the end of his life. He most likely knows that, and he's writing with instructions to Timothy about carrying on the work after Paul is gone. So that's a little bit of general information about the epistle. We see that Timothy's, a little bit of information about Timothy's situation. We see that he had Christian influence from his mom and from his grandmother. 1 Timothy 4.12 contains Paul's instructions to Timothy to let no one despise him for his youth, which implies that he became a pastor at a young age. And so this young man had learned the faith from his mom and from his grandmother. And at a young age, he showed maturity and, and a real grasp of sound doctrine and, and the Christian character to go along with it. And he had been called to be a pastor in Ephesus. 
Timothy seems to have a soft temperament given all the instructions that he receives from Paul in the pastoral epistles not to be afraid, not to be ashamed. Timothy doesn't seem to be sort of the brash young man that's not afraid of anyone. No one can tell him what to do. Rather, Timothy seems to be the sort of guy that would be inclined to just let others despise him and walk all over him for his youth. Timothy seems to be the kind that would likely be afraid and be ashamed of the gospel. And so Paul is encouraging this young man to have steel in his spine and not to be afraid. Timothy is truly saved. And truly called. Look at verses 3 and verse verses 3 and 6. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve. For what? Well, I thank God whom I serve. The substance of his thanksgiving is in verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith. Paul is thanking God for Timothy's faith. What this means is that God had His own purpose and grace, according to verse 9, for Timothy before the ages began. And in due time, God brought Timothy to faith in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, as he prays, he thanks God for Timothy's faith. Timothy is a saved man. Timothy is a regenerate man. Timothy is a Christian man. And verse 6 tells us that he has received a gift of God which is in him through the laying on of his hands, of Paul's hands. We know, of course, that this isn't salvation. Paul can't just go around and lay his hands on someone and impart a gift of salvation. And so this has to be something else. And when we go back to the early practice of ordination in the New Testament church, from the beginning, it involved the laying on of hands. And so Paul here has ordained Timothy to be pastor here in Ephesus. And so this gift of God is what is called in verse 9, this holy calling. Paul says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, a set-apart calling, both Paul and Timothy have been set apart for gospel ministry in their own ways. So, as one who is saved and as one who is called to a holy calling, Timothy is a recipient then of what Paul calls a good deposit in verse 14, where he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, let me just ask you, what is a deposit? A deposit is a down payment of more payment to come, right? If you want to buy something like a house and you just don't have, you don't happen to have a few hundred thousand dollars cash on hand, then you make a deposit, you make a down payment. And that's, that is part and parcel of securing a mortgage, showing, showing that you're serious about it and it's, a, it's some stake, some investment that you have in taking out this loan. And it's, it's an earnest of more payment to come. The Gospel of John tells us that from Jesus we have all received grace upon grace. Timothy has received grace, hasn't he? 
He's been saved and he's been called to a holy calling. But has God given Timothy the full balance of the grace that he intends to give to Timothy? The answer to that question is no. So what he has received really then is just a good deposit. It is a good deposit of more grace to come. In the words of this text, God has saved Timothy and called him to a holy calling, verse 9. But then as we go on from there and continue reading, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Timothy has been saved and called to a holy calling. And because Jesus has appeared, He has the hope of immortality at the end of all things. And so there is future grace to come now that Christ Jesus has rendered death quite docile and quite impotent, abolished. Therefore, there is a deposit that God has made of grace. He's given a certain amount of grace and it is simply a token of more grace to come. This is important context for us to understand because the thrust of chapter 1, which we're looking at tonight, is the imperatives of what Timothy must do. Why is Paul writing to Timothy. He's not telling him for the first time that he's been saved and called to a holy calling. Timothy knows that. He's reminding him of that then. Right? But what is, what is the reason why he reminds him of this? The reason why he reminds him of this is because he wants him to live in view of all of this. He reminds him that he has received a good deposit because he wants to tell him to guard the good deposit. He reminds him that he's been saved and called to a holy calling because he wants to tell him how to do that, the manner in which to carry that out. And so the imperatives here are really central to Paul's intention in writing first or pardon me in writing 2 Timothy chapter 1. And the first imperative that we see here in verse 6 is to fan into flame the gift of God. Timothy has not only been ordained to pastoral ministry, but Timothy has been gifted for it by Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4 tells us that it is Jesus, it is Jesus who gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, And teachers, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And the grace that was given to Timothy was grace to shepherd, grace to pastor. Paul didn't make Timothy something that he wasn't when he laid on hands and ordained him. Rather, Paul recognized what Timothy was by the grace of God because of the 
faith that God had worked in him and the maturation that God had worked in him and the gifts that the risen, ascended Christ had entrusted to him. And he wants Timothy here to fan these gifts, fan this gift into flame. We all know when a fire is burning down that you can blow on it, give it a little bit more oxygen, and it will start to come up. I'm not talking about a little candle. I'm talking about like something like a campfire. You, you don't really have fireplaces here in Barbados, but obviously up north in Canada, a number of people do have fireplaces in their home. Nowadays, a lot of them are gas, and there's glass in front, and you never open it up. But some people have old, old wood stoves or, or open fireplaces with chimneys. And a lot of people have a, a thing called bellows beside, and it's basically like an accordion type thing, and you pump it like this, and it blows out air. And this is to fan into flame a fire that is dying down. And so just like rearranging the wood is one way of making a small fire bigger, so also is blowing on it or using the bellows to fan this fire into flame. And this is what Paul wants Timothy to do here. There is suffering on the horizon. You imagine Timothy, this timid young kid, who has been thrust into the pastorate, but sort of has a soft temperament, and here's his father in the faith, in jail at Rome, and we all know how that is most likely to go. And here he is in Ephesus, hundreds of miles away, probably growing faint, probably growing weak need. The fire is getting lower. And the fire is going to go one of two ways. Either Timothy's going to say, you know what? This is it. It was a good run. I tried, but this is the end. Paul's been arrested. He's in jail in Rome. I just can't do it anymore. I can't go on without my father in the faith. Or, the alternative is that Timothy is going to fan his gift into flame and he's going to get more serious about the work and he's going to get more intense about the work. This is what happens in a fight, you know. If you ever watch combat sports, this is what happens. When a guy, when a guy gets put back on his heels, back against the ropes, so to speak. When the other guy is winning the fight, one of two things happens. Either the guy continues to wane and wane and wane until finally he's knocked out or he taps out or the fight ends and he loses on the scorecards and he just fizzles. Or he finds a way to fan into flame the gift that is in him and to start throwing those hands and to look for those takedowns and to put to score points on the judges scorecards and perhaps to get a knockout or to get a submission it goes one way or the other when things start to get tough there's that old saying right when the going gets tough the tough get going right when the going gets tough, it goes one way or the other. You either crumple or you get going. And what Paul is saying to Timothy here is, look, you're a saved man. You've been called to a holy calling. And Christ has abolished death. Life and immortality are in front of you. Tis just one life. T'will soon be passed. 
Timothy, only what is done for Christ will last. Fan into flame the gift that is in you. Don't crumple up in the corner, Timothy. Fan this gift into flame. Work harder. You're not winning this fight right now. You're losing on the scorecard, so you can't just go out there and keep doing what you're doing. You need to fight harder this round than you fought last round. Because look, I'm dying, and I'm not going to be here to help you anymore. You need to step up and fan this gift into flame. That's the first imperative. The second imperative is kind of two sides of the same coin. Look at verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He knows that Timothy is going to be tempted to be ashamed. You know why? Because holding fast to the testimony about our Lord is going to lead to suffering. Look at what Paul says about himself. In verse 11, the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. The reason why Paul suffers as he does is because of the testimony about our Lord. If Timothy is not ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, then he will suffer as Paul suffers. Paul says in verse 12, I am not ashamed. And he's saying to Timothy, you shouldn't be ashamed either. Even though this is going to lead to suffering, don't be ashamed. You're going to feel it in your heart, that tendency to back off of the gospel and to to be ashamed of it and to keep it quiet. To not be outspoken, to not be bold, to dance around the issues. You're going to feel that, Timothy. Because you know as well as I know that if you don't dance around the issues... If you don't keep things quiet, if you're bold, if you're clear, if you're forthright, you're going to suffer as I do. Don't be ashamed. But share in suffering for the gospel. This is the second imperative here in this passage. Interestingly, Paul says in verse 13... Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. You realize here that Paul has just held himself up as an example. And then Paul goes into two other examples in verses 15 to 18. Fidulus and Hermogenes, who are bad examples, and Onesiphorus, who is a good example. He says, you're, you're aware that Fidulus and Hermogenes turned away from me. They were ashamed of the gospel, implicitly. They were not willing to share in suffering for the gospel. When I was arrested, 
Phygelus and Hermogenes were nowhere to be found. They didn't want anything to do with me anymore. They turned away from me. They're counterexamples of what Paul wants Timothy to do. But Onesiphorus, on the other hand, he's a fantastic example of what ought to be done. He refreshed Paul and was not ashamed of Paul's change. He searched for Paul earnestly and found him. He rendered service not only in Ephesus, but when he got to Rome, he rendered service to Paul. Back in these days, Roman prisons would feed prisoners semi-adequately, sort of in a bare minimum kind of way. And if you were to get anything more than the bare minimum, you had to have friends or family members come and bring you stuff in prison. But it wasn't, it wasn't like it is today where there were protocols and, and procedures in place which made it obvious that you're not a criminal yourself but just caring for a family member or a friend. Back in those days apparently if you went and visited someone in prison it was, it was thought perhaps you were an accomplice. Perhaps you had some share in their crime. And so you, you actually exposed yourself to arrest. I wouldn't hesitate to go visit someone in Dodds. I wouldn't think that they're going to see me show up and say, oh, so you mean you sell drugs too? <laughs> There's that demarcation. We know in this day and age, someone visiting a prisoner is not necessarily himself a criminal. But back in those days, to visit someone in prison was to expose yourself potentially to the justice system of the Roman Empire. And so Onesiphorus was willing to share in Paul's sufferings in order to refresh him. He searched for him, exposed himself to the shame and the scandal of being associated with Paul, a criminal. So Paul's an example, a good example of not being ashamed of the gospel and of suffering for the sake of the gospel. So is Onesiphorus. Phygelus and Hermogenes are bad examples. They're ashamed. They turn away from Paul. They're not willing to share in suffering for the gospel. So there's these examples all through this text. There are these patterns of doing well and doing poorly, doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. There are these patterns all over the place. But it's interesting what Paul says in verse 13. What pattern is Timothy to follow? Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Follow the pattern of the sound words. It's not wrong for us to look to the examples of Onesiphorus or Paul or people we esteem and people we respect in our day and age. Maybe a John Piper or a Sinclair Ferguson, a Mark Chansky. Older guys that seem to be finishing well. It's not wrong for us to look at guys and say, hey, they're good examples. It's not wrong for us to look at guys who have been bad examples and, and to try to steer clear. But the calling isn't to conform ourselves to Sinclair Ferguson. 
or to Mark Chansky or to whoever else. It's not ultimately the pattern of this man or that man that we're to follow, but it's the pattern of the sound words. And that pattern of sound words, because we don't know until someone dies whether they finish up. Realize that? We don't know until someone dies whether or not they finish well. I've seen enough old guys have scandal come out at this stage of my life that I'm, I'm, I'm not cynical, but I'm also not... I'm not starstruck by anyone. And if you're going to fan a gift into flame and fight, if you're going to be prepared to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to share in suffering for the gospel with everyone else who's suffering for the gospel, you can't be prepared to do it only if so-and-so also does it. Or if so-and-so is willing to go before you. <laughs> what, what happens? What happens if I'm standing beside an old Christian man and they say, we're going to cut your heads off. And the old man says, Caesar is Lord. And I'm trying to follow that pattern. You see, that puts weakness in my knees. You understand? Because I'm going... All this time I was following your pattern, man. And now you're going to turn away? And you're going to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, that makes it hard for me to fan into flame. And that makes it hard for me to not be ashamed and to share in suffering. But if I make it my ambition to note good and bad examples as I go... But to resolve to follow the pattern of sound words. Then the old man says, Caesar is Lord. And I say, take my head. Because Jesus abolished death and brought to light life and immortality. Do your worst. Whatever he, whatever he does is not neither here nor there to me. You see, that, that commitment to the words of the faith. That's what makes a fighter that you can never defeat. That's what makes someone who's ready to go deep into the late rounds of the fight and never give up. Because nothing anyone else does shakes him. Nothing anyone else does phases him. He's not conforming himself to their pattern anyway. It's the sound words. To which Timothy is to conform himself. Guard the good deposit. Paul says in verse 14. Guard the good deposit. You are saved. You've been called to a holy calling. This is the deposit you've received already. 
And there's more grace coming down the pipe. Immortality, Timothy. At the end of all things. <laughs> Stay the course. Don't make a shipwreck of your faith. Even if you can't lose your salvation, which someone who is truly saved can't, the reality is you can still make a mess of things. Don't do that to me. Guard the good deposit. Guard the good deposit. Now here's the crucial point. Guard the good deposit by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Verse 8. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What is the difference, really, ultimately, between Onesiphorus and Paul on the one hand, and Fidulus and Hermogenes on the other? Yes, there are real choices that, that men made, real discipline that, that Paul and Onesiphorus exercised. There was a real process of maturation which occurred in Paul's life and Onesiphorus' life in which they were not passive. So they, they did something and I'm not negating the human aspect. But the big difference between Paul and Onesiphorus on the one hand and Figulus and Hermogenes on the other. It's not, it's not something like genetics. That Paul and Onesiphorus are just inherently stronger and better and tougher and more resilient and have a stronger temperament and so on and so forth. The Fidulus and Hermogenes were just born a little bit weak-kneed and inherently weaker and struggled more than Paul and Onesiphorus. That's, that's not the right way to understand it. Yeah. We're not the right man on our side. Our striving would be losing. So yeah, I mean, there's this imperative to human activity, isn't there? Guard, share in suffering, fan into flame. These are not passive words. These are not like pray for God to do this. These are like you do something. But the reality is here, and this ties in well with our sermon this morning about self-reliance. The reality is, if we say, okay, well, I can do that. I'll fan that gift into flame. I will not be ashamed of the gospel, because I'm full of courage. I'm not going to be ashamed, but I'm going to share in suffering. Because... I'm bigger, I'm stronger. I'm a better man than the men around me. I'm cut from a different cloth. I'm going to guard the deposit entrusted to me because I'm really something. 
If you think like that, you're like those Laodiceans that we read about this morning in Revelation 3. You thought they were rich and needed nothing. But in fact, were wretched and pitiable and poor and naked and blind. Paul urges Timothy to do something. But even as he urges Timothy to do something, he urges Timothy to do something by the power of God. He urges Timothy to do something by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So, it should look something like this then, that quote that I share with you from time to time. That a saint long gone once said, the things we pray for give us grace to labor for. Timothy is not merely to pray. He's to fan into flame. And he's to share in suffering. And he's to not be ashamed. And he's to guard the good deposit. He's not merely to pray. But he is to pray. It should should go a little something like this. God, all around me, There's opposition. All around me, there's suffering. All around me, there's difficulty. Look, Paul's in jail in Rome. Fidulus and Hermogenes turned away. Oh Lord, there go I, but for the grace of God. Hold me, strengthen me. I know I've got to resolve. I know you're not just going to hit me with a lightning bolt and make me something... Against my will, in some kind of process that I'm passive in, where I don't resolve and I don't act and you just do it for me. I know that's not going to happen and I know that when I'm done praying, I need to get up and fight. But God, strengthen me. I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Like I said this morning, what but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? What but thy grace can sustain me in this work, this holy calling that you've called me to do? What but thy grace can give me the steel in my spine as a soft young man who is afraid that people will despise me because of my youth and who's going to be tempted to turn away? What but thy grace can make a young man like me, Timothy, with a disposition like that, strong and tough and resilient? What but thy grace can make me a fighter that's going to go all the way to the final bell and not turn away? I need the Holy Spirit. I need your grace. Help me, oh God. Something like this is what Paul wants Timothy to practice. Fan into flame the gift. Do not be ashamed, but share in suffering. Follow the pattern of sound words. Guard the good deposit with the help of the Holy Spirit. By the power of God. The application of this passage to your life depends largely on how similar or dissimilar your context is to Timothy. For someone like me, 
who is a pastor. It's pretty directly applicable. I read this instruction to Timothy the pastor. I think to myself, all right, well, that's pretty much more or less direct correlation. But whether pastors or not, as I read earlier from Ephesians 4, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's not just the leadership gifts in the church, the fivefold ministry as they call it. But there are spiritual gifts which vary. But each one of us has received a gift from Christ. Fan it into flame. Don't be passive in the exercise of your gift. Fan it into flame. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, but share in, in suffering for the gospel. I mean, this is applicable to all of us too, isn't it? Follow the pattern of sound words. Well, is that only for pastors? Not follow the pattern of sound words is for each one of us who is a believer. Guard that good deposit with the help of the Holy Spirit. This really only differs in one way with respect to the way it applies to pastors and the way it applies to other Christians. And that's simply that pastors obviously are to exercise pastoral gifts and pastoral vocation and other Christians are not. <laughs> but, but really and truly, there's still like 90% overlap in terms of application here. So think on this passage. Don't write it off as if it's only for pastors. Recognize what Paul wrote to Timothy. Recognize where your life and your context varies from Timothy's and adjust accordingly. But see here that really and truly 90% of what Paul is saying to Timothy is directly applicable to you. And the other 10% is still indirectly applicable. You just have to make a contextual adjustment. So fan into flame the gift of God that you've received. Do not be ashamed, but share in the suffering of God's people for the gospel. Follow the pattern of sound words that has been given to us, regardless of what anyone else does. Guard the good deposit that, is, that you've already received, knowing that there's more grace to come. Do this with the help of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God.